Welcome everyone to the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology's Last Week in Texas podcast. It's March 23rd and we are here again with Michael Smith. Michael, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for having me, Wayne. Well, it's good to have you back. Um, you seem to have had a day job for the last couple of weeks that required your attention in court. So um, thanks for making a little bit of time for us. Um, and with that, tell us, tell us what you've been learning in court the last couple of weeks. Well, it, it has been an interesting couple of weeks. We had a, another patent trial uh, in Judge Gilstrap's court in Marshall uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I have been busy uh, with that. And uh, it's, it's actually the fourth patent trial I've had with Judge Gilstrap in the last 12 months. And what I really learned is that you never stop learning. You never stop finding out uh, new things to object to, new ways to, to make the other side have to do something. Uh, it was, as I said, a patent infringement case. Uh, the jury came back. Um, according to what we were able to find out, the jury actually deliberated for about 35 minutes after lunch and came back finding none of the claims infringed and all of the challenge claims invalid. The plaintiff asked for $63 million, uh, so the jury came back with a complete defense verdict uh, uh, in that case. But as I said, it, it was a fun case, not least because the water went out in Marshall on Friday afternoon before trial. So I had my house set up and some of the members of the trial team coming out to take showers and, and uh, otherwise get ready. But that's that's kind of your job when you're local counsel. If, if they need water, if they need power, if they need heat. Uh, but it, it was a very interesting trial. We had a lot we learned about how the court wants things done and more efficient ways to put things on. Anything in particular? Well, impeachment with a prior deposition is something, as I said a few weeks ago, Judge Albright said, for the love of God, if you're going to be in a courtroom, know how to impeach with a prior deposition. Well, what I learned in this trial is you may think you know how to do it because that's how you've always seen it done. And what we found out is if somebody stands up and objects, the judge may have an opinion about the way that everybody's used to doing it is the right way of doing it or not. Well, we've always paid close attention to how Judge Gilstrap wants this done. But what we learned uh, when objections were made is that he requires that the witness's uh, memory be refreshed with a copy of the deposition before you put it up in front of the jury. Well, that wasn't the way most people do it. So you had to ask the question, get the answer, then say, do you remember having your deposition taken? And then give them the page of the deposition, which actually works out fine, because in patent cases, we hand up giant notebooks for all the witnesses anyway. So you tell the juror, I mean, you tell the witness to flip to page 35, look here, you see, I asked you this question, yes, and your answer was this, wasn't it? And only if they deny it, can you then put it on the overhead and show it to the jury. Now, if no one objects, that's what people do all the time. But what we learned in this trial is that that is an objection that that uh, seems to be likely to be granted. And uh, if it is granted, the judge uh, requires it to be done uh, a little bit differently than the way most of us do it. But again, you, you learn something new every day. There's a there's a big difference between reading and publishing it to the jury. Uh, and so you got to know totally what's permitted. It totally destroys the impeachment value because you get the guy to agree to, yes, I did say that. And unless they then take issue and say, but no, what I'm saying now is correct, only then can you publish it to the jury. 
And candidly, that, that bears a little more resemblance to the Texas state rule than it does the federal rule. But as we all know, when you're trying a case in federal court, it's how your judge wants things done. You have to figure out how they expect for it to be done. And much as I regret not having the ability to slap it down and have an aha moment in front of the jury, it does make things go a little quicker uh, when you just pull the person back to what they said in the deposition and you only get to have the big dramatic moment if there is actually, um, uh, let, me, let me back up. I, it gives the witness a chance to understand what they said before and and avoids you kind of tricking the witness by the witness not realizing or remembering what they said before so there is there is some merit to it michael i gotta make an admission here uh, many many years ago kind of one of my early trials with judge ward i, I might have made that mistake between the difference between reading that in and publishing it too fast and judge ward helped me understand the error of my ways very quickly well and and again uh it uh, sometimes you don't find out that you're not doing right if somebody doesn't object in the trial i had with judge gilstrap a month ago in february we were in chambers in between and the judge was kind of indicating you know that's not the way i thought impeachment with the deposition worked and the other side made clear I know it isn't. I just decided not to bother with the objection because I felt like the way it was being done was so ineffective that I didn't want to get in the way by by forcing it to be done the right way. So it comes up in a lot of lots of different ways. And if you only deal, that's the great thing about dealing with both lawyers that are really good and lawyers that are really bad, because sometimes you learn more when you when you have lawyers at different levels and that was one thing i noticed in this case there were things that i saw that i hadn't seen before that i thought well i'm going to put that in my that arrow is going in my quiver now i know to, i know to do that uh going forward but it, it it was a it was a very fun trial uh enjoyed uh it was a very large trial team a month ago i was working with two in a case that had two lawyers on each side plus me this case over 20. uh so not, no, over 20 people, about half of whom were lawyers. So a substantially larger trial team and um, a potential need for showers if the power, if the uh, water didn't come back on. Well, Michael, uh, moving away from, from the ones you were trying, there was an interesting set of post-verdict motions out of Judge Gilstrap's court in the Infernal case. And, you know, a fee motion and some post-trial motions but it seemed like there's a significant learning opportunity here. Oh, I think so. And in the Infernal case, the jury found non-infringement and the jury also found, made the patent ineligible finding on one step of Alice, said that it, it, it was well-known, et cetera, et cetera. So you get a motion for new trial from the losing plaintiff that, that is trying to get the, uh, trying to get a new trial, trying to get the verdict set aside. And the judge said, no, the argument you're making is one that is precluded by the court's claim constructions, which by the way, guys, were agreed to. So he denied the motion for new trial uh, with respect to the 101 issue because the jury passed on part of the test. He went back after the trial, found on the other side that it was not directed to an abstract idea, and therefore there wasn't a basis for invalidity under 101. Now, what was interesting about that is the defendant had never filed a motion raising the 101 issue before trial. The court didn't really know that it was coming up. There wasn't a motion to dismiss. There wasn't a summary 
summary judgment or a motion for judgment on the pleadings. So the 101 issue began to be dealt with at trial and at the post-verdict stage. But, but the court notes that, well, you didn't file a motion on this ahead of time. Well, there's nothing wrong with that. But this becomes something that as we move on to the fees side has a major impact. The court says, I mean, the bottom line on the fees motion is the court tells the defendant, yes, you won, but you don't get fees uh, under the totality of the circumstances. The conduct didn't render the case exceptional. And then it goes through the three arguments and says, well, your first argument is that um, the plaintiff's claims were frivolous in light of the court's claim constructions, but you never made that in a motion pretrial. Uh, you argued that the plaintiff should, that it was exceptional because the plaintiff dropped a claim of infringement as to a product during trial. And he said, that's not standing alone enough. And by the way, you didn't file a dispositive motion as to that product. So what the court tells us is, you didn't view this issue as frivolous enough to attempt to dispose of it before trial. And then finally, there was kind of an oddball damages issue. The plaintiff had had so much trouble with its damages report that the court had stricken it, had uh, allowed the plaintiff to do a supplemental report, but there were still problems with that. So the judge said, okay, fine, we're going to try liability and we will bifurcate damages, which almost never happens. But in this case, he pushed the damages off and the defendant said, well, that's enough for exceptional case. And the court said, no, we had we didn't get far enough down the road on damages for me to say that makes it exceptional. So what this tells us is, if you think you've got something that you want to build an exceptional case motion around, a 285 motion around, uh, if it's that bad, you probably need to be papering the file with some motion practice ahead of time, identifying what's wrong with it. Well, that's something a lot of us don't think about ahead of time. So in the same way that we learned this from Judge Gilstrap a few weeks ago, having to deal, having to do with post-verdict injunctive relief, you need to look at it uh, pre-verdict uh, when you're thinking about a 285 motion as well. It's a good lesson that, that fee motions aren't mo exercises in creativity after you get the verdict in. It has to be something you need to be beating that drum all the way through. It, exactly, exactly. It's and, and, and we've got a large enough corpus. We've had eight years of this now. We've got a large enough corpus of opinions from the judges that hear a lot of these cases that you can read those opinions and tell, here's what the judge thinks is exceptional and here's what the judge thinks is not and start to kind of paint your, your picture before you get to trial. Here are the things, uh, because after trial, the court's going to say, well, wait a minute, if this was so bad, if this was frivolous, because the court's claim constructions meant that the plaintiff could never go forward on this, then why didn't you file a motion? You filed four other dispositive motions, and the court uh, points that out. You filed a lot of dispositive motions, but you didn't file anything uh, addressed to the conduct that you're now saying was exceptional. Well, Michael, there's also there's a strategic maneuver in this case that I think is worth, worth looking at, and that's kind of the evolving use of 101 at trial. And in this particular case, the court never brought step one of Alice, or the, the uh, defendant never brought step one of Alice to the court, instead just took step two straight to the jury. And you see that as a strategic move or an oversight? What's your, your thought on that? Well, the, the, um, I don't know what we're seeing and i recall we had this discussion last december at the stanford berkeley event 
every time off the top of my head that I can recall this issue going to the jury, the jury says, yes, it was well understood. So you can get that finding from the jury. Maybe it's better to get that finding and then bring the issue up in front of the court based on the whole record after that. Maybe that is a better idea. Maybe it does avoid tipping off the plaintiff uh, any more than you have to, that you're going to be coming after the, the patent on this basis. It also locks in that finding so that if, if on appeal, the court decides to set aside the, uh, uh, the other finding that the court made uh, about abstract idea, you've already got in the can, the jury saying uh, it was well understood. Well, and let's, I mean, I wouldn't underestimate the power of moving that alleged priority and under the idea of well understood, kind of muddying the waters between well understood and 102, 103 invalidity. Not that yeah. a trial lawyer would muddy the waters, but it might yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah, no, not, not me. No, no, absolutely not. But no, it, it does it does indicate that there is some uh, tactical maneuvering that parties need to look at here. What, which way is it better for me to bring this up? What is the way that I need to uh, respond if the other side does try to bring this up? I've had that happen this week where one side is trying to, in a case to engage in procedural maneuvering, more power to them, and I have to figure out a way to procedurally maneuver the other way to try and block things uh, so that we end up getting to the same point at the same time. Well, the, the next case um, that seems to have a good teaching point is the USAA case on bifurcation. Not something you see a lot in patent cases, um, but when it comes up, it's pretty important. So what's what's going on in this case? Right. And, and we'll talk about, we've got one case here uh, uh, out of Marshall, and we've got another one out of Waco that go different ways, and they point out the factors here. The question here was whether the patent infringement counterclaim that was brought by the defendant should be severed from the trial on the plaintiff's claims against the uh, the defendant. And the court had, had kicked the can down the road on this and said, let's wait and decide this later on. And as the court came, got close to trial, it decided that it would sever the counterclaim. Uh, and it, that was based on it finding that trying the patents together would expand the scope of the technologies presented to the jury and that there were few common questions of law or fact. So you've gotten the benefit of having everything prepared together, but we're going to try the plaintiff's claim and then the defendant's counterclaim as to a different patent with unrelated technology separately. That, that's not going to happen in every case, but it's useful to look at this opinion and see, well, here are the factors that cause the court to decide I'm going to split it out and try these separately. And that's a theme I've heard from lots of federal judges through the years is the the focus on helping the jury out. I mean, what can a jury reasonably be asked to do? This is a great point. If the technologies are too different, you can't ask a jury to learn two separate technologies in one setting. Well, it 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 absolutely it 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 puts a lot of burden on the jury that doesn't have to be put on the jury. These are two separate lawsuits and maybe there's efficiencies to trying them together, but what the court found here was that in this case there were efficiencies in preparing them together, but not in the end in trying them together. And again, nobody knows until the end of the case what claims are actually going to go forward. So you don't know if these are actually going uh, to stick around late in the case or not. A lot of affirmative counterclaims drop out 
and you don't really know what the complexion of the final claims are going to be until close to trial. Well, the reason I think this case is so important, Michael, is there are a lot of attorneys that look at counterclaims, you know, once they've been, been sued, saying, hey, I can counter sue, and then we can jam all these cases together, and they'll go up or down at the jury. It just makes it such a, a mess that people maybe want to settle rather than take a chance in front of a jury. That's, this tells that, you, you, you may get two trials out of it. Right. Well, it, it, it certainly, that runs a risk of confusion and maybe that's to your tactical advantage to try and throw everything in together. But again, we have to remember as much as we may want confusion or not, as, as much as we may want confusion for a tactical reason, the court's looking at it from a different point of view and is, this, this is a court that's well experienced with looking at juries all week long. They know kind of what they can absorb and when you've given them too much. And the court can make a good decision on, in this case, there's, there's no harm to either side to separating these out. There is definitely a potential harm in trying them together because what you were just pointing at is what I got the impression the court was looking at, which is there's a substantial risk that the jury's verdict isn't going to be based primarily on the evidence. There may be confusion. And as you said, they may just go all the way with one side or the other. We do see if the jury goes one way on infringement, they tend to want to go that way on invalidity too. I've, I've, of the trials that I've had, I've got three non-infringement verdicts and two of those, the jury also invalidated all the claims. So there, there is a, a definite tendency for a jury to go all the way once it starts going one way or the other. Well, Michael, moving on to the, the neighbor's case, this is a preliminary injunction case. And it, it seems that Texas and drilling services and preliminary injunction motions tend to tend to run together a lot. We're getting a lot of a lot of good cases out of out of these folks. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I had a, a, a trial with drilling companies a few weeks ago. I had a preliminary injunction proceeding with drilling service, different drilling services case a few weeks ago. And now we realize the same thing's happening over in the Northern District of Texas. And again, Neighbors is a good case where you can look at and, and see the court saying, okay, what have you got on irreparable harm? What have you got on a nexus between the harm and the alleged infringement? And you don't get there here. I think this is an area where you potentially could get there, but this tells us that simply coming in and saying it's a competitor, we've got a good case is not enough. You've got to show more than that. I think this this is a great case to look at because on its surface, it looks like a classic preliminary injunction case. You've got two competitors. Uh, they'd be using the same technology at the same time. There seems to be head-to-head -head competition but just not enough there. And it doesn't seem like it was poorly briefed. It seems like the facts just aren't there. Right. It, it, it's a well-briefed motion. It's got good facts for, for kind of putting in, in sharp relief what the facts are regarding the competition and the harm. And it just ends up showing the court, this is money damages. This is not something that under these facts, uh, gets you to irreparable injury, but but it's helpful in that it shows you well. Well, here's the direction I need to go in order to show irreparable harm. It's like that case several months ago with Judge uh, Albright, where he found 
he granted a preliminary injunction and, and explained, here's what's unusual about this case. You don't normally have facts and proof like this, but we've got facts and proof in this case. So, okay, now I kind of know what I need to be aiming for. I'm not, I'm not shooting in the dark anymore. Well, Judge Mazant um, picked up a, a case on a motion for attorney's fees, and we're seeing lots of these come through um, with probably less success than uh, those filing the motion would want. But I thought Judge Mazant's case was really interesting in uh, his method for calculating an appropriate rate for an attorney, which we know I mean, rates have gotten so high in patent cases, often shockingly high. This gives us some guidance on it, though not a, well, con not a patent what, case. What was, and I have to confess, the reason I ran across this case, because it's not a patent case, it's a breach of contract case, was because lawyers were circulating it saying, oh, look what the, look at the fee that the judge approved on this. And when you compare it to the fees we see in patent cases, I was like, guys, this is actually, um, this is not really that high. But in Texas, uh, this always, I, I love the look on the faces of out-of-state out lawyers when I explain to them, if you prevail on a breach of contract claim in Texas, that entitles you to attorney's fees under the Civil Practice and Remedies Code. So in this case, the plaintiff prevails on breach of contract. They come in with all of their proof on uh, uh, on attorney's fees. Well, as you said, since we don't see a lot of those granted in the 285 context, this provides us an example of a court going through the analysis for, okay, here's what an appropriate rate for an attorney is, here's how you document that, and it gives you some uh, a, a very good analysis to follow as to what the court needs in order to approve the fees. Again, we see this a lot more common, a lot more often in Texas in contract cases than we do in patent cases. But it, in the end, it would be the same analysis if you got the court to find uh, a case exceptional. Well, and I think that is important for those that are California, other places that the federal judges aren't seeing or aren't calculating rates that that frequently. And Texas judges are, so you have to be a lot more thoughtful about what's taking place locally. Right. They they see requests for attorney's fees or they have to measure and calculate attorney's fees more often than you might think. So um, you're not going in with a with a new issue for them. This is something that I'm sure Judge Judge Mazant, just from the experience I've had with my cases with him, he does this all the time. This is this is a routine practice for a judge who tries a lot of uh, cases in Texas. Well, uh, now we can can move a little uh, southwest to Waco, and we can't talk about Waco this week without mentioning Baylor's tournament performance. Yeah, we could talk about it without mentioning Baylor's tournament performance. I was, uh, I did not have a good week. My teams went out on the second round, both of them. <sighs> well, I, I got to tell you that that was uh, quite surprising, though. Um, if it makes you feel any better, Kentucky feels worse. So, well, it, I, I tell you, I got an email this morning from Baylor Athletics that, that were bragging that the football team starts spring training today. So we're all we're all shifting to the important sport now. Time, time to move on. Yep. Um, well, as we move uh, from the athletics department to Judge Albright's court, um, he's got really an update on his standing orders. And there are a couple pieces I wanted to talk about here. One is the claim construction hearing time limits. And what does that really mean? 
probably means nothing because they weren't taking longer than that anyway. We had an extensive discussion about this with the judge in the recent patent rules meeting, and he indicated he was going to start instead of instead of scheduling them for a longer period of time, one in the morning, one in the afternoon, or something like that, he was going to start scheduling them for an hour each. And he explained in the last year, he's done over a hundred of these. And I think I heard him say only one actually went longer than that. I may have misheard, but he basically said, this is not, this is not going to affect most cases because remember he sends out preliminary constructions a day or two or, or three or four, it varies depending on the case. He sends out preliminary constructions. So you already know what he's likely to do and you can focus your presentation. So it ends up being shorter. So this is actually not, not a big deal for that reason. Also, he made clear, if you really think you need more time than that, he's happy to set aside more time. Also, as we'll get to in a little bit, we're starting to see special masters conducting claim construction hearings in the Western District Waco cases. So um, I, I asked the judge, well, now, if we consent to the magistrate judge, or uh, you think maybe we'd get more time? So it may be that you can talk a special master into more time uh, or the incoming magistrate uh, judge compared to what Judge Albright can give you. Well, there's, there's an underlying problem with that is that if you don't need the time, you don't need the time. It just seems that some lawyers feel more comfortable talking than than writing for, for briefing. Um, so I think it's a great message from the judge that everything he needs comes in an hour. Well, it, it's hard, it's hard to avoid taking away the impression that this is someone that's done a hundred Markman's in the last year. He knows how long these should take. And I should take that to heart that in all likelihood, my hearing ought to fit within an hour. And if it doesn't, maybe I'm not preparing it the way I should. Well, the other the other big change, and this is you know a developing area of law across the country, and I think a lot of other courts may be watching this rule and whether it needs to be adopted locally. That's the new 101 contention. Well, that's that's true. There was a Judge Albright made a change to his requirements for the defendant's preliminary invalidity contentions. Now, as a starting point. This is not what we're used to under under patent rules. It is a trimmed down version of what you would have to do, for example, in the Eastern District of Texas or Northern District of California. But the judge has now added in a requirement that if if you were going to charge that the plaintiff has claims that are directed at el, at uh, ineligible subject matter, you have to identify the alleged abstract idea or whatever it is in each claim identify which claim element you say is well understood, et cetera. And then to the extent it's not duplicative of other contentions, provide the prior art for that contention. Now, I went through this in a case with Judge Albright a few weeks ago where we briefed this and the plaintiff wanted full Judge Gilstrap 101 contentions. And the judge ended up saying, yes, I'll require contentions, but not that extensive. And he's now added that into his procedure. So it provides parties with a little more upfront. But remember, Judge uh, Albright has a discovery moratorium outside of contentions until you get to the other side of claim construction. So it's not like you could send out discovery requests for this early on this is all you can get without getting additional leave of court. But it is it is an indication uh, that uh, he's going to presumptively allow a certain level of discovery on 101 issues. 
Well, then the next piece that um, is, is unique, I think, is the way to, to describe it. Not unique in a bad way. It's just it's experimenting with with efficiency. And that's the, the email briefing on discovery disputes. Right. Judge, Judge Albright doesn't allow parties to file motions on discovery disputes. He, he told us a few years ago he got that from Judge Mazant, who does them by phone calls. And he's been tweaking his procedures over the last several years to figure out the best way to get those disputes up. And what he's landed on and what I have to say has really been popular with the bar is send me an email with 500 words each side with what it is that you want. That gives us, and for example, that's how we, we brief the 101 issue that I was just talking about. Uh, that gives the court enough information that he can understand the discovery dispute, can prepare for a phone call or can just write and say, nope, uh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to allow this, but not this. What's happening now is that 500-500 rule is getting tweaked a little bit. And what happened in this latest round of changes is he lets you have double the word limits if multiple issues are involved, which is helpful. And he also requires the parties to propose the exact language sought to be issued in a court order, which is something he sort of used to have where you, each side has a box saying, here's the issue, here's what we want the court to do. I think this is very helpful because I, I had one of these discovery calls with Judge Mazant a few weeks ago where Judge Mazant kept asking the other side, what is it that you want? What is it you want me to order? And the party couldn't tell him. The party was just talking in general terms. So when you give Judge Albright this limited briefing, which is not that different from what you do in front of Judge Gilstrap where you have limited briefing, you give them the limited briefing and you give them the precise language of what you want, then he can approach it more effectively and it's a more efficient use of his time. And what I'm starting to see is a large number of discovery, detailed discovery rulings coming out from the court, some of which the parties have prepared under the court's requirements that you draft a proposed order after he rules, and some of which show that the court now has enough time to put out discovery rulings saying, okay, here's the dispute, here's how I see this, here's what I think um, uh, should happen on this. Uh, so obviously he's able to get enough time now to give us some useful rulings on some things, as well as resolving the disputes in a particular case. Well, Michael, you mentioned uh, the idea of magistrate judge doing claim construction. And again, I use that word specifically, magistrate versus special master. What's the current thinking on, on this shift? Well, I, I, I have never seen, I think in my entire career, I've seen a special master one time in the Eastern District, and that was uh, on a uh, uh, proceeding, a special master that was assisting the court with uh, mediation. You, you just don't see special masters involved in the litigation process. What, what Judge Albright did in this case was uh, issue in the same way that we saw the judge from Virginia do a few weeks ago, uh, Judge Albright referred the claim construction issue to a special master to come up with proposed claim constructions. The special master held a hearing, came up with a detailed order with what all the constructions that were being recommended were, and then that goes to the district judge, and uh, you have the ability to then file objections the same way you would to a magistrate judge. So it, it, I'm not saying it's a, it's, a, it's a bad process at all. It's just something we haven't seen previously. The benefit is that you get, in the same way that previously you were gonna get 
proposed constructions from Judge uh, Albright before your Markman hearing, here you're getting a 8, 10, 12, 20, 25 page opinion with all the detailed reasons and you can then focus on what it is that you think you want to get the, the district judge to change. So it's just a different way that we're seeing this done and I'm assuming this is going to be uh, a little more common. The caveat is it may not be once the new uh, magistrate judge is is on the bench uh, next month at that point maybe the court won't use special masters for claim construction anymore we and go back to using them as technical advisors we we don't know that right now michael you also hinted at another severance case that didn't have the same outcome as the earlier one we discussed which is the, the canon case Right. In the Cannon case, um, the defendant was Cannon, and Cannon filed a third-party complaint against uh, a third party. Uh, and the court, and, and then the third party said, well, sever those claims out of the main case. And Judge Albright looks at the case, looks at the factors, and says severance under these facts isn't warranted because of concerns of judicial economy, streamlining discovery, and prejudice to all the parties. So this is an example of where a party asked for severance and the court said, no, this one, it makes sense to go ahead and resolve everything in one case. And I, you, when you really line this, the Cannon case up with the previous case we discussed, you can see the difference. This, the, they, the facts lay out here, very similar. Uh, the jury seems to have the same workload or a very similar workload. Yeah, I, that, that's what it looked like here is it was the same technology, the same claims. Uh, the defendant is simply saying, if I'm responsible, then then it's because of this third party. And that's something that a jury can. It's the same facts. So a good thing to keep in mind is you're pondering severance. Put yourself in the shoes of the jury and then brief it from that perspective seems to be a powerful, powerful approach. Actually, that's probably a pretty good rule for all litigation matters. Uh, oh, I think uh, I think I think so. Pay attention to the facts of your case because they tend to be different. Um, well, we have the venue case. Um, not as many of these coming up uh, in the press these days. Uh, it seems that a lot of it's settled in, but the uh, CPC Apple case is a is a pretty interesting set of facts. Right, and 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 we're kind of getting three different groups of venue rulings and this week we we have some to talk about in all three groups the first is the 1404 convenience transfer and this was a case where apple is the defendant and wanted to transfer to the northern district of california and the court looked at the facts here and said what's different here is that a lot of the facts are tied to the western district of texas the products are made in the western district of texas there is co-pending related litigation. There are significant contacts uh, with, with witnesses. And there are, there are people who couldn't be compelled to attend trial in California. Now, so that's a little bit different facts than we see. But the court makes one other note here. And this is something that I've seen in several opinions. When the court's looking at Apple's evidence about where its information is, Interestingly, the aff affidavit doesn't say that the information is located in the Northern District of California anymore. It only says, in this case, it's located in California, in, in the Czech Republic, in Australia, or it's accessible in the Northern District of California. So that's a little different fact that we've seen previously, where a defendant comes in and says all the documents are in the transferee forum. The court noted that's not what your, what your witness said. 
uh, in this case. So, so the court denied the motion in that case. So, so Michael, when I, I read this, it seemed like a long shot convenience transfer motion from the beginning. Am I, am I missing something here? No, no. I, based on the order, I, I think it was because what I've, the, the, the thread I've, I've tried to tease out of recent Federal Circuit mandamus opinions is that they are unwilling to mandamus a district court's denial of a motion to transfer if there are witnesses and facts in the, in the forum court, if there are witnesses in the Western District of Texas, if products are being made there, if there are parties that are located there, they tend to not grant those grant those motions. So in this case, I think Apple was was saying everything was in the Northern District of California. But the facts were actually that people were not all in the Northern District of California. They were, in fact, spread all through the world as were the documents, and there were parts of the case that could not go. There were witnesses that could not be compelled in the Northern District of California. So it, it, it's it's a today's theme seems to be that facts matter. And in this case, the facts were not the facts you would like to have when you're seeking a transfer based on convenience. Well, one fact that seems to not matter is the work from home location of employees. Seems like Judge Albright confirmed that once again, and this this is pretty definitively established now. I, I, I think so, and we had a couple of really good cases on that. In several recent cases, Judge Albright has rejected the claim that, well, your 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 employees all work from home, therefore it's the place of business of the defendant. And he said, no, that's that's not. You're not meeting the test for that. Uh, you're saying the fact that the products can be bought in the district. Well, that makes the retail location the the. Uh, uh, the place of the defendant. No, he's pretty consistently denying that. What is interesting, though, is the one case where he, um, or he, I should say he's granting motions to dismiss in those cases. What's interesting is in the one case where he denied it, um, uh, in the WSOU case, let me explain here. Judge Albright again said that your, your the home offices were not enough to constitute a regular and established place of the defendant of the, but it, but he spent several pages indicating just how close the facts got the the there were people doing work at home there were people doing the defendant's work at home it was very very close to being a basis for venue he ended up deciding it's not under this case but it didn't matter in this case because he said the offices of the defendant's wholly owned subsidiary did meet the test because it maintained offices and those could be imputed to the parent under an alter ego theory. It doesn't matter that they're a, that they're a subsidiary is not enough, but if you can make the alter ego showing, then it is. So in that case, the court uh, found that there was proper venue. But again, if you're going to try to make a work from home argument, you need to read that case because the plaintiff got awfully close to making it there. Uh, unlike every other plaintiff I've seen make this argument, going all the way back to the to the Cray case in 2017. Well, and Michael, I, I'd also recommend people read this case so they don't get too excited about that subsidiary language. The court was very clear. It's alter ego, uh, not oh. subsidiary. So I think that's an easy one for people to miss as they start talking about this at a high level. That's that's absolutely correct. It's sort of like when uh, Judge Albright granted a preliminary injunction and everyone said, oh, well, he's granting these now. No, 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 no. Look at the facts of the case. 
Here, this is a case where they really did, were able to meet alter ego. Very few, but there are a lot of cases by Judge Albright as well, finding that a related party is not enough. It's got to be the contacts of the defendant. So again, look at this and see whether you've got facts to make alter ego, uh, or if a party is telling you, oh, you've got a subsidiary, you can point out, yeah, but they're not an alter ego. You might even want to go try to make sure that your facts don't support an alter ego theory uh, in advance. So Michael, I'd love to finish this week on a case that uh, seems to be coming up very frequently these days and actually for many days prior, and that's the IGT case about discovery into uh, products that were uncharted. That, that issue comes up a lot, and, and the issue in the, I, uh, in the IGT case was the um, plaintiff said, here are our products, here are charts on our products, we're also accusing everything else that's reasonably similar, and the defendant said, well, but those don't infringe, so they wouldn't provide discovery. And Judge Albright gave a very useful opinion. And again, the holding isn't what matters here. It's the, the other language in, the, in, in here. He says, you can't refuse to comply with discovery because you think they don't infringe. The plaintiff is entitled to discovery to verify whether uncharted products are reasonably similar. And he says the plaintiff was pretty close to the end of the rope here in terms of reasonable similarity, but close enough to get the discovery. He then gives several pages of telling parties, look, here's what you can do to resolve this. You can bucketize the products, pull out a couple, and figure out uh, how, how similar they, they are. And he gave the party several pages of recommendations uh, and suggestions on how you can resolve disputes on this. You can file motions to dismiss. Um, you can come up with, um, you pick a product, uh, we pick a product, and, and do it that way. So it's a lot of good advice from a court that's seen these disputes come up both in practice and on the bench as to how you can resolve these disputes in a way that's more efficient than, than having a full-blown discovery dispute. Well, Michael, this is actually the most detailed opinion that I think I've seen in my career on, on an issue that comes up in almost every high-tech case um, that, I've, that I've been a part of. So it's, it's really worth studying. Uh, I, I think that's absolutely correct. It also gives you some insight on creative ways that you can resolve a dispute, probably cheaper for your client than uh, the way that might have occurred to you first. Wonderful. Well, Michael, thank you once again. Um, a good week of, of practical advice. Um, it's funny how occasionally we drift away from the most important thing in these cases is that they're all different and the facts actually matter. So That's absolutely true. Facts do matter. Well, I will leave you to next week and uh, to Baylor's next year's basketball season. So. <laughs> Let's hope it turns out better than this one. All we did was win one conference championship. So, well, it's a start. So take care, Michael. Thanks very much. See you next week.